When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a few weeks' time, the eyes of a worried world will turn to Glasgow. COP26, the UN Climate Change Summit, delayed a year by covid is perhaps the most important gathering since the Paris Agreement in 2015. A summer of flash floods and wildfires across the globe has concentrated many minds. We've got a moment of lots of dystopian stories because, I mean, it's been a cataclysmic few months in terms of extreme weather events. What we need in Glasgow is a sense of this is a problem and we can do it and we're going to do it. The summit is just that, the culmination of a process. Much of the real work is happening now. So what needs to take place in these last few weeks? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, COP26, the road to Glasgow. There's rubbish weather and there's weather that kills. Dozens of people in the Vancouver area of Western Canada have died in an unprecedented heatwave. Police say they've responded to almost 70 sudden deaths since Monday. Gigantic infernos burning across Siberia on an unprecedented scale. The wildfires burning in Russia now are bigger than all the fires raging across the globe combined. The death toll from those devastating floods in Western Europe has climbed to more than 180, but it's expected to go much higher. Millions of Americans are still suffering tonight, almost a week after Hurricane Ida plowed into Louisiana. The storm's path stretched 1,500 miles through 21 states. It killed at least 65 people. Now, Madagascar is paying one of the highest prices for climate change, which they have done little to cause. The toughest droughts in 40 years have left thousands on the island on the brink of starvation. Where once it was a matter of conjecture whether extreme weather events were made more likely by man-made climate change, that time has gone. So what will our leaders do about it? And how will they decide? To find out, we thought we'd speak to someone who knows, who has been in the room when those in power make the decisions. Yeah, it's a picture of an informal meeting of finance ministers to discuss climate change. Rachel Kite is Dean at the Fletcher School at Tufts University in Massachusetts, a graduate school of international affairs. But in a recent life, she worked on sustainable development for the World Bank and later on sustainable energy for the Secretary-General of the United Nations. And sitting next to me on one side is the then head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, 
Sitting on the other side of me is the then head of the World Bank, Dr. Jim Kim. And then next to him was the then Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon. And around the table are about 40 finance ministers. The picture Rachel is describing is visible on the wall behind where she's sitting for this interview. It was taken in the spring of 2015 in the lead-up to COP21 in Paris. The summit, where world leaders agreed to hold increases in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. So days before the Glasgow climate talks, these are the kinds of meetings that are in preparation for this fall as well. The UK currently holds the COP presidency, and so will be hosting COP26 in Glasgow starting at the end of next month. To understand the fevered work currently going on behind the scenes in the run-up to the conference, we're going to take a step back to the last time a big agreement was reached at one of these conferences in Paris in 2015, with which Rachel was intimately involved. By the time you get to the conference itself, large parts of the agreement are in shape and are clear, but there will be critical issues that still need to be resolved. And you really want to have cleared away all of the brush as much as possible so that you can just focus on those few remaining things and and that you would hope to have achieved a success in some of those before you get there as well. And so the way to think about it is a sort of glide path and a landing strip. You have different pieces of the puzzle coming into focus and you want to try to land those as much as you can before you get to Paris. The glide path would be the weeks and months leading up to the conference itself, which is the landing strip. Another analogy that might help understand what actually happens at the conference is to visualise concentric circles. You have negotiators who are experts working within ministries often backed by their environment minister or another minister. They're sort of the inner circle. And then increasingly, in order to get the deal and get an agreement, you've got ministers of finance or heads of state walking into the room. There's this famous uh, incident back in Copenhagen in 2009 when Barack Obama barged into a room where the Chinese, the Indians and the South Africans were meeting. The second concentric circle then is experts or lawyers, NGOs, think tanks, scientists, who are there to advise governments as they try to find agreement. The third concentric circle then would be sort of like what I would call parallel activities. You've got the the insurance industry having events, talking about what's possible, all kinds of different business groups, NGOs, the media, etc., all swirling around trying to urge agreement or commenting on what is and is not happening. And then you've got a fourth concentric circle which is more and more and more important, especially since Paris, which is what I call the street, where you've got kids marching, where you've got sort of culture and art and all kinds of demonstrations going on. So it really is an extraordinary and extraordinarily large, we're talking about 20, 30,000 people, well more than that in Paris, all coming together. But at the heart of it is language that needs to be negotiated. You want as much of that done before you arrive at the conference itself. Can you just take me through what it was like to be in Paris? I mean, you arrive, some things are settled, some things are possibly a little bit less settled. How is everybody with each other? Are they friendly? Are they business-like? Are they grandstanding? No, all of the above. 
So normally people arrive, the negotiations ensue, the negotiations get sort of constipated, there have to be breakthroughs, politics is brought to bear and there are phone calls from capital saying, come on, I mean, there's lots of pushing and shoving. And then you hope that at the end of two weeks, you have an agreement and the agreement may be incremental, it may not be what you want. What the French did in Paris is that they asked heads of state to come on the opening day. And they started with the photo shoot with every head of state there. And they had everybody from the UK. Not only was the head of government there, but Prince Charles was in town as well. Rarely in human history have so many people around the world placed their trust in so few. Your deliberations over the next two weeks will decide the fate not only of those alive today, but also of generations yet unborn. You have everybody there. And basically it was, this is the political will to reach an agreement. This is going to be something that requires each of you to put your fingerprints on. This isn't something you can delegate. And then we went into the negotiations. And then, of course, the negotiations went right up until the wire and then well over the wire. These things never actually finish on time. They always tend to run over while the agreements are being reached. Hollande said, we are living a historic day. Never before has a conference hosted this many authorities from so many countries. And yet never have the stakes of an international meeting been so high. In Paris, it was very high stakes. There were real moments of drama between countries. There was an emergent high ambition coalition. And you had pictures of very small countries like the Marshall Islands with a population of 100,000 sort of walking into a plenary negotiation, a huge conference room with delegations sitting all around with the EU and the US walking alongside them uh, in solidarity. There are a lot of moments of theatre as well as closed door negotiations. Each country has like a room in these negotiating halls. And in Paris, we were at Le Bourget Airport, and so you've got these huge purpose-built sort of hangars with lots of little rooms built inside them. So the German delegation has a room, the French delegation has a room, etc. And you know, people running frantically between these rooms because there might be an informal, informal, informal discussion being led by the Brazilians at 11 p.m. in one of these rooms, right? And I remember looking for the Minister of Environment for Brazil. At that time, a fearsome negotiator named Isabella Teixeira. In order to just discuss one technical detail and walking in, and there was a very interesting constellation of people sitting in that room, different delegations, a surprising constellation, actually. And I remember sort of backing out of the room and sort of making eye contact along the lines of, we need to talk, but I can see you're busy. And then walking out and thinking, okay, well, if that constellation of ministers is sitting in that room, you hope that she was knocking heads together for a positive result. Je n'entends pas d'objection. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. Paris in 2015, COP21, that was quite an important COP meeting, wasn't it? Yeah, the way to think about Paris is that Paris was about the what. There was the need to agree to the next phase of action 
also informed by the ever-worrying, worsening predictions of science about where we were. Many countries still need a parliamentary vote to formally approve the deal, which commits nations to restraining the global rise in temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. 2015 was the planet's warmest year since records began. And so Paris was an agreement on what would be the action that every country would take in order to move us forward in tackling climate change. And the Paris Agreement, which was the outcome of that convention, really stipulated that all countries agreed that we should try to limit global heating. They agreed that we should try to limit the emissions that caused global heating so that we could get to no more than two degrees above pre-industrial levels or actually preferably well below two degrees and that now is sort of framed as one and a half degrees. They also agreed that uh, we should leave no one behind so we would have to work on adaptation so how do we live with the impacts that we've already caused and there were agreements on then carbon markets uh, would need to be part of the solution and there were agreements on finance as well. So it was the what. Glasgow is about the how. As the start of COP26, the landing strip in Glasgow, approaches, it becomes ever clearer what the conference is being required to achieve. I think we are a little behind where we need to be. The how is backed up by this ever sort of increasingly frantic conclusion of the science, right? That the how is that countries have got to come with a ratcheted up ambition, each country has to come with its agreement or should have filed its agreement already with the UN on how it's going to manage its transition and decarbonize and protect its own people and invest in its own adaptation and resilience. And when you add all of those plans up, then we need to be on track for a world of one and a half degrees of warming. And we're, we're not at the moment. And a number of countries have not ratcheted up their ambitions sufficiently. For Kate... There are three big things that we absolutely need out of the Glasgow summit. One is that every country come with more ambition and that that ambition be sufficient. And the UK has a very big role in running around, making sure that everybody does what is absolutely necessary, needed and the minimum, as it were. We need to know how are we going to be supporting countries that need help in order to cope with the impacts of climate change that are already upon them. And this is becoming a bigger and bigger an issue because of the impacts which are growing every year. And then the third piece is the finance package. This is the gravy that makes everything else possible. This is a story of broken promises by developed countries over many years, which have assumed a huge political import. And it's also the story of where's the future money going to come from? And without a finance package, and without a finance package clarified before you arrive in Glasgow, Glasgow becomes very, very difficult to negotiate. Opportunities for finalising these negotiations before COP26 are running out. So there were hopes that at the G7 or at the G20 this summer, but there are still hopes at the General Assembly in September of the United Nations, or at the meetings of the World Bank and the IMF in October, or the last gasp would be the G20 just before we arrive in Glasgow. Otherwise, Glasgow becomes very difficult. You've described it as the how. In many ways, the how is more difficult than the what. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In Paris, there was a feeling of elation that we got the kind of agreement that we did and that everybody was in, right? Everybody was in. 
But there was also like, and now the hard work begins. So here we are five or six years later, and we're not where we needed to be. Which puts even more pressure on the presidency, currently held by the UK, to sort things out. It is a job of galvanising people's focus around what ambition needs to look like. So if we know we've got to be driving our economies towards one and a half, then you need to have a a target for that by 2050. You need to have a very aggressive target by 2030 because you need to get rid of 45% or thereabouts of emissions by then, which means that there's no room for coal. That means that you have to have plans to move away from fossil fuels. You shouldn't be subsidizing fossil fuels anymore. It means you need to have plans for nature because nature's the greatest carbon sink we have, and we're going to need a lot of negative emissions capability. We're going to have to have plans for methane because that's speeding up the impacts of climate change. So all of these things that come out of the scientific reports, countries need to do that. And the presidency's job is to run around the world, make sure that everybody's working together on ambitious agreements around those issues and is both using carrots and sticks. One important actor in all this is business. It's easier for negotiators and for countries to submit ambition if the financial sector and the business sector, as well as sort of students on the street on a Friday and civil society, if people are saying with sensible policy environments, we think we can do more and we think we can do it faster. So the work that the UK is doing around what is called a race to zero, that's about companies and financial institutions coming forward and making pledges to get on the right track and to decarbonize their business or to uh, run their business in a way which is aligned with the science of a one and a half degree world. That becomes very important because it makes it easier for politicians to agree. Essentially, countries have got to have plans in Glasgow that say, Mm -hmm. this is how we're going to get rid of any coal. This is how we're going to get rid of a lot of oil. And this is how our businesses are going to behave in order to get us to the various targets, which actually add up to the 1.5 and not something more than that. Now, you mentioned carrots and stick methods to try and get people there. Let's first look at sticks. What's the stick? Very interestingly, after Paris, President Macron, when he came to power, said that there would be no trade agreements with France and there should be no trade agreements you know, with the EU if there wasn't adherence to the Paris Agreement. And so I think there has been some flirting with sticks. Emmanuel Macron has upheld his stance and recently spoke out against a deal between the EU and a group of four South American countries, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay, because it wasn't compatible with France's climate and biodiversity agenda. I think there will be regulatory sticks in the financial sector. I think you're going to start to see and you're beginning to see central banks asking for stress testing on carbon risk and climate, not just on other elements of of macroeconomic and fiscal policy. And so the sticks will start to come through the financial sector. So in other words, if you're not green enough, you're... You're a bad risk. Yeah, your your interest rates will go up. There's a softer stick in the market as well, which is that young people don't want to go and work for firms that aren't part of this more sustainable future. And it, it's very interesting to look at where young people want to go and looking at some of the companies in the more heavy carbon intensive sectors and firms that are maybe on the back end of the transition, they're having problems recruiting. 
What are the carrots? Well, the carrots are access to financial resources, the alignment that comes with every multilateral development bank, the IMF, the private financial sector, all sort of looking and being clear about where they see the risks and the opportunities and therefore the price of capital for green investment goes down and the risks uh, of holding a lot of tail risk in heavily carbonized assets goes up, right? So if you're a developing country, then is there a package that can be put on the table to help you decommission coal quickly? And that would be money and technical assistance and access to the support that you would need. So those kinds of things are going on at the moment. So these kinds of things get pulled together and get put on the table and get sold as we're asking you to do more, but we're not asking you to do more without support. Coming up, how tackling climate change might be financed and how we adapt to the climate change that, whatever we do now, is already baked in. But first... I'm Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent to The Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to report on what's going on in the corridors of power in Whitehall and Westminster. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit times.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. been something of a problem in the carrots and sticks strategy so far. The carrots, promises of financial support, haven't always materialised. There's this totemic figure of $100 billion per year for climate action in developing countries. And this was a commitment that came from 2009, but then became sort of enshrined in Paris 
as something that should be achieved by 2020. That has never been achieved. And in fact, we now need to see a commitment to going beyond 100 billion as the costs and the needs go up. So it's a promise that was made that has never been fulfilled. And every year that it is not fulfilled, the developing world just looks at the developed world while everybody is urging everybody to come with greater ambition and saying, you know, guys, you know, get serious. Where's the 100 billion? Now, there has been a drama, uh, a telenovela almost, around how do we count that money, what money counts, who is allowed to count it, who can be trusted to count it. Now, at the same time, trillions of dollars of investment has flooded away from coal, certainly, but a lot of oil and gas stocks and out of carbon-intensive businesses and assets, and as people have understood the risk of climate change and therefore the desire to be invested in green infrastructure, green energy, etc. So there is in the private markets, you know, trillions of dollars that you can point to that's now available for investment that was never there before. But under the rules of the UN, that hundred billion is not there. That hundred billion would be countries committing to provide climate finance over and above their overseas development assistance, over and above everything else they already pledge. This has been difficult politically for the UK because the UK brought swinging cuts into the support that it provides developing countries anyway through their development assistance, even though the UK is one of the biggest funders of development assistance and is one of the biggest funders of climate finance. They've kind of tied their shoelaces together by appearing to be sort of withdrawing from those kinds of promises and commitments. Are you saying the UK, which is chairing the Glasgow COP, obviously, has not really helped the cause of getting this financing going because it is seen by developing countries to have cut its other finances? The UK, at best, provided developing countries with a perfect opportunity to point out the hypocrisy of the developed world on climate. At worst, the UK has made the job of Alex Sharma and his team just remarkably more difficult when it was already a very difficult job. Alex Sharma was previously the Secretary of State for Business, but since the start of the year has been the UK-nominated President of COP26. While it's usually the advanced economies that play the most important role in this kind of financing, the past few years have been beset by complications. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. The Trump administration cut the financing and there was no financing flowing from the US that would count really towards 100 billion or there was no more financing. So all eyes have been on the Biden administration to come back and make good. And certainly the Biden administration has signaled that it is coming back with more resources. And certainly every element of the Biden administration is now focused on this issue, but they haven't been able to make good yet. And of course, they would have to go to Congress for some of that. And uh, as we know, the, the congressional support for this kind of spending is not always robust. And of course, envoy for President Biden, John Kerry, has been crisscrossing the world, trying to show that the US is an actor that can be uh, trusted again, trying to almost make up for the four years of absence. Now, we've talked about the emissions cuts that are needed to get us to 
stay below 1.5 degrees increase in temperature, which includes a lot of developed countries going for net zero. We've talked about the financing for other countries to help them develop in such a way that they can also meet those targets. Now let's talk about the third element, which has really uh, taken the foreground this summer, given the weather events, which is what you call adaptation. I suppose, really, first, you ought to define adaptation. So adaptation is the ability to be able to adapt to the changing reality brought by climate change. So maybe you're a country that used to have a drought on a cycle of every five years, and now you have it every year. You may be having extreme rainfall events and and having flooding three times a year, whereas perhaps you would get it only once every two years. You may have sea level rise. You may have erosion of your coastline. You may have infrastructure which is vulnerable to changing climate change. So you might have bitumen roads that just melt because the temperatures are so high for so long. All of that is the cost of adaptation. How do you keep people safe? How do you keep people in an environment where they can be cool enough to be able to be well? How do you protect food chains? How do you protect medicines and vaccines and things like that? So it's an incredible cost uh, of adaptation. And the countries that face the greatest impacts from climate change right now, often just because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? So they may be in the changing cyclone alleys of the Pacific, or they may be in the central provinces of the Philippines or on the coast of sub-Saharan Africa. These people and these countries have contributed the least to the problem. And so there is a big element of sort of justice in there. And there is also a concept of loss and damage. So there is a reparation. These are costs that have been born because these countries didn't do anything wrong. They just find themselves in this situation. So you've got adaptation costs and loss and damage, and it's becoming bigger and bigger every year. And it's been perhaps overshadowed by the discussion on emissions reduction. Even if we limit the rise to 1.5 degrees, we are going to see more and more of the kinds of events which require adaptation to, in other words, negative things which are happening, usually as weather events, and that we have to try and prepare people for. And that is already a given. That's already going to happen. It is, to use a bad phrase this summer, baked in. Absolutely. Yeah, over the last 20 to 30 years, all of those emissions that have gone up, they're in the atmosphere now. They are causing the problems that we see now. And every day we belch more into the atmosphere. And so, yes, we've baked it in. You were involved in Paris and you're now looking at the run-up to Glasgow. Candidly, what are your hopes and genuine expectations? The G20 countries, so the 20 sort of biggest economies in the world, account for you know, 80% of the emissions. If every G20 country comes with a revised ambition, that gives us something to work with. And if they come with revised ambition on an aggressive enough timeline, then it really gives us something to work with. We have to be able to deliver that. Anything short of that becomes politically uh, untenable. We need to be able to mobilise public resources for the most vulnerable and the poorest and the most at risk in the world, and then send very clear guidance to the private sector so that the speed with which private investment flows into green and away from brown 
sort of continues to take place. And I would like to see a finance package which really represents the kind of public commitment that has to come from the richer countries. I think we'll get bits of all of that. Whether we get all of it, uh, I don't know. I think the way to think about this is that everything that we don't agree and everything we either push off to another meeting or kick to the next summit of heads of state, we're just playing with time and time is a resource we, we really don't have. We, I think, run a risk of not being able to present to the general public that there is something quite exciting about imagining a world where the air is cleaner and where your commute might be faster and where the city you're living in might be more beautiful and greener and more fun to live in and where there would be more jobs in the things that we need to build. And we miss that imagination and leadership, I think, from political leaders. So what we need in, in Glasgow is a sense of this is a problem and we can do it and we're going to do it. We've got a moment of lots of dystopian stories. And then we have lots of stories about how it's going to be difficult and painful and it's going to have to be lots of sacrifice and all the rest of it. Yes, it will be if we don't make the right decisions. It's not beyond us. It might be beyond our leaders. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Rachel Kite, Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. The producers were Edward Drummond and Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Asia Fuchs. And sound design was by David Crackles. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to times at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. <laughs> <laughs>